every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hello there, and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. Hey, thank you so much for being a part of our growing audience here. And, you know, I want to start with something here. I just actually uh, just spoke with Tim earlier today, and uh, we we had a very, uh, very productive conversation about something that I suspect a lot of us are feeling right now. And uh, and so I, I want to just jump on this right out of the gates and, and just, just put this out there. First of all, do you feel at some level of your life that you are called to stand up for something? Now, the answer is going to be different, you know, for different people. Some people, for instance, are um, not going to feel a sense of religious call. Some people, myself included, um, I feel like I feel like God put it in my heart that, uh, you know, I am to stand up and to to use what he has given me in terms of uh, my time, my talents, you know, my my loves. To, to proclaim liberty throughout the land. And so I, I feel like that's kind of a sacred duty. Other people uh, feel, you know, there's just like, there's some universal alignment that says, hey, you were created to stand for something. And so they do. And I'm guessing that there's a better than average chance that, uh, that you have felt that call at some level of your life to, to be the person who, who stands up against the tyranny that has been this, this tyrannical spell that's been cast over the world. And if that's true, so I'm just going to take it as a given that at some level you're nodding going, oh, yeah, 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 I kind of feel that. Do you ever get the sense that uh, nothing you're doing is really making a difference? Yeah, maybe we're making some waves or some small ripples, but is it actually causing something to happen? Is there some kind of small victory that would indicate that, that, that what we're doing is bearing fruit. And again, I can't answer for you. But I will tell you that uh, I feel that same sense of discouragement from time to time. I feel that, uh, that same wonderment of, okay, is this just a figment of my imagination? Is this some delusion of grandeur? Yes, you're supposed to speak up and, you know, you know stand for what matters. Because I think it's pretty normal to have those kind of doubts. And so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to invoke a name here that you may not associate with having serious doubts, but, but I only do this to illustrate that uh, even people who you would think would have no reason to doubt whatsoever sometimes have that, that sense of, am I making any kind of a difference? Am I really doing, you know, something that matters? I'm sure you've heard of Mother Teresa. She, uh, of course, was a sainted, Catholic nun, just a, a wonderful person. I actually had the privilege of meeting a woman who worked with Mother Teresa in India. 
back, I'm guessing this would have been in the 1970s. It was before Mother Teresa really was was a kind of a, a famous figure for her work among the untouchables, the people that nobody else would, would minister to. She cared for them. She was a nurse. She, she took care of the people that, uh, that everybody else literally would turn their backs on. And when I say Mother Teresa, for most people, you know, it's like, well, you would think that lady, I mean, she was a saint. There could have been no doubt in her mind that, uh, you know, she and God were on the same wavelength and she was doing the right thing. And yet, if you read her personal writings and you read her memoirs, you will discover that there were actually periods of time in her life where she felt absolute closure in the heavens above her. It's like her prayers bounced off the clouds because she just couldn't connect with God. And I share that with you not to point out that, well, see, even she didn't know if any of this is real. My point is simply this, though. Those times when she had doubts, and they were times that, that, that shook her, you know, to, to, to wonder, am I, am, I, am, I, am I doing really what I should be doing? She still kept doing what she believed to be the right thing. Even those times when she didn't have a, a very clear affirmation from God that, yes, Teresa, you're doing exactly what I want you to do. The lesson there for us, or at least the the lesson I take from that, is that uh, we may not be able to see the light at the tunnel, the light at the end of the tunnel. But it's essential that we keep moving forward. We find the courage to keep our feet moving. Um, Hopefully, within your life, you have have found guiding principles. You have a, a moral compass that will keep you on track. And I think I, I actually find greater admiration for Mother Teresa as well as every other individual out there who struggles to do the right thing and yet sometimes is, is just struck with those doubts of, am I really making any kind of a difference? Or is this, does this really matter in the long run? Now at the moment... I'm coming from a place where I feel a lot of peace in my heart. And to me, that's a good indicator that whatever I'm doing is is likely aligned with God's will for me. That's how I gauge whether I'm on course or not. The degree of peace that I have in my life or the lack of peace that I have in my life has always been a pretty good measure of how I'm doing. But my message to you is simply this. Don't give up. I know our numbers seem few. I know it seems like we are um, hopelessly outnumbered by people, some of whom, I think it's a very tiny minority of whom, actually you know, want to go out there and, and be evil, diabolical, controlling, you know, coercive personalities. The vast majority of people go along to avoid criticism and to avoid drawing attention to themselves and Sometimes they just, because they don't think that anything they do is going to matter. It's the path of least resistance. So what I'm asking you to consider is, stand up. This this love of freedom, the desire to be a disciple of liberty, it's not just a political itch that needs scratching. It's a legitimate call to resist that tyrannical spell that's been cast over the world. 
In fact, one of the most impressive invitations to that answer that I've ever seen is an article by Margaret Anna Alice. She has this published on her Substack account. And it's called Letter to a Colluder, Stop Enabling Tyranny. Now, again, given who I suspect, you know, the the kind of character of a person who I think would be listening to programs such as this one. I don't think she's talking to you so much as the colluder, but it's still a great example of things for which we need to be aware. And she starts with a quote from Milton Meyer from his book, They Thought They Were Free, the Germans, 1933 to 45. In his book, he talks about how a few hundred at the top to plan and direct at every level, a few thousand to supervise and control without a voice in policy at every level, a few score thousand specialists, teachers, lawyers, journalists, scientists, artists, actors, athletes, and social workers, eager to serve or at least unwilling to pass up a job or to revolt. A million of the pobol, which sounds a lot like people and means riffraff, to do what we would call the dirty work, ranging from murder, torture, robbery, and arson, to the effort which probably employed more Germans in inhumanity than any other in Nazi history, and that is the standing of sentry in front of Jewish shops and offices in the boycott of April 1933. If you haven't read Milton Meyer's book, They Thought They Were Free, it's, it's definitely one that will be very eye-opening. I can say without exception, the people I've recommended this book to who actually took the time to read it have all come back to me and said, holy cow, that book is talking about us. So here's what Margaret Anna Alice says. She says, I am willing to die to defend my liberty. And she asks, are you willing to die to take my liberty? No? Good. Then stop enforcing totalitarian measures against your neighbors on behalf of the tyrants who wouldn't hesitate to annihilate you. Stop planning, directing, supervising, controlling, and performing their dirty work. Become part of the the resistance instead of an enabler of democidal despots. Now, she says whether you're a law enforcement officer, public health official, psychologist, scientist, medical professional, educator, employer, censor, propagandist, or any other agent of complicity in this war against the people. You, the colluder, are what makes dictatorships possible. You are what makes enslavement possible. You're what makes genocide possible. You're what makes the biggest lie in history possible. Now, she says you may not be one of the Gestapo agents beating individuals entering a public space without their vax port, wrenching children away from their vax criminal parents, pummeling anti-injection protesters, stripping and needle-raping resistors, reverting Australia to a penal colony, or restraining and forcibly injecting the elderly and mentally disabled, otherwise known as useless eaters by your predecessors. You may not be one of the public health officials instituting ineffectual and deleterious mask guidelines and lockdowns based on fraudulent PCR tests, testing wastewater to justify iron-fisted measures, or falsifying the numbers to magnify a fabricated threat and conceal the deadly factual consequences and statistically astronomical number of adverse reactions to the injection. You may not be one of the psychologists devising the mass persuasion campaign that has hypnotized the obedient, the gullible, and the ignorant around the globe. She says you may not be one of the scientists 
Too frightened of losing your career, credibility, grant funding, and future to denounce the fraud being perpetrated under the cloak of science, trademark. (laughs) She says, you may not be one of the physicians violating the Hippocratic Oath and Nuremberg Code. As you deny potentially life-saving medications, deploy murderous injections, administer lethal drugs such as remdesivir, inflict ventilator-associated lung injuries, apply high-risk interventions like intubation, gang-inject patients, coerce pregnant mothers into risking miscarriage, refuse to treat non-GMO humans, and contemplate prioritizing ICU beds for the injected. You may not be one of the nurses flouting the nursing code of ethics while pinning down screaming children as you plunge in the poison death jab. You may not be one of the daycare employees torturing toddlers into wearing masks. You may not be one of the fascist institutions complying with merciless edicts to fire the rational dissidents in your organization. Now, that's a pretty long list of roles that are are being played in perpetrating this great lie. And I think it's remarkable that in her article, Margaret Anna Alice includes a link for every single example of what she's talking of. She's not just pulling this out of thin air. That's pretty sobering. She says, you may not be one of the censors suppressing evidence of all of the above atrocities while simultaneously silencing and smearing the honorable scientists, medical experts, whistleblowers, and other truth-tellers valiant enough to refute the preposterous narrative you have swindled so many into believing. You may not be one of the propagandists blaring the biggest lie talking points over the loudspeakers through every conceivable mechanism, 24-7, 365, till the feeble-minded succumb to your relentless coercion from exhaustion, peer pressure, menticide, and Orwellian doublethink. But here's the kicker. She points out you don't have to be any of those abominable scoundrels to be an enabler of tyranny. You simply hold your tongue. That's all you need to do. You simply need to look the other way. You simply need to turn a deaf ear. You simply need to stifle your gut feeling that something is profoundly, irrevocably wrong about every venomous lie, absurd policy, and malignant mandate that has bombarded the public since spring 2020. She says all you need to do is simply live in fear. You simply need to cling to your ignorance. You simply need to follow the leader. You simply need to surrender to cowardice. And here she presents a series of video clips where she says, see if you recognize your present or potential future self in any of the following scenes from these dystopian phantasmagorias of our own world that's increasing, that our own world is increasingly coming to resemble. The first clip is from, uh, I think it was George Lucas's first feature film, THX 1138. That film was produced in 1971, starring Robert Duvall. I still remember watching this as a teenager and being disturbed at the dystopian inhumanity of the society portrayed in THX 1138. She also has uh, Brazil, which is wonderful parody. I forget which, I think it's uh, Terry Gilliam, one of the Monty Python, uh, original Monty Python members, uh, showing what bureaucracy is like run amok. There's a clip here from Fahrenheit 451 where the old lady prefers to die rather than leave her books. There's also a nice clip from A Clockwork Orange, where the droogs take Alex for a walk. Some interesting stuff to watch. Give yourself some time. 
But remember that every act of collusion, every stain on your conscience, every bureaucratic compromise of your values etches an ineradicable, an ineradicable scar into your soul. There's a nice excerpt here from, again, Milton Myers' book, They Thought They Were Free, The Germans, 1933-45. to This was a philologist colleague of Milton Myers explaining how he came to the realization that he, in fact, was standing on the wrong side of history. He says, And one day too late, your principles, if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you. The burden of self-deception has grown too heavy, and some minor incident, in my case, my little boy, hardly more than a baby, saying, Jew swine, collapses it all at once. And you see everything. Everything has changed, and changed completely under your nose. The world you live in, your nation, your people, is not the world you were born in at all. The forms are all there, all untouched, all reassuring. The houses, the shops, the jobs, the mealtimes, the visits, the concerts, the cinema, the holidays. But the spirit, which you never noticed because you made the lifelong mistake of identifying it with the forms, is changed. Now you live in a world of hate and fear. And the people who hate and fear don't even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, no one is transformed. Now you live in a system which rules without responsibility even to God. The system itself could not have intended this in the beginning. But in order to sustain itself, it was compelled to go all the way. You have almost gone all the way yourself. Life is a continuing process, a flow, not a succession of acts and events at all. It has flowed to a new level, carrying you with it without any effort on your part. On this new level, you live. You've been living more comfortably every day with new morals, new principles. You have accepted things you would not have accepted five years ago, a year ago. Things that your father, even in Germany, could not have imagined. And then he says, suddenly, it all comes down at once. You see what you are, what you have done, or more accurately, what you haven't done, for that was all that was required of most of us, that we do nothing. You remember those early meetings of your department in the university, when if one had stood, others would have stood, perhaps. But no one stood. A small matter. A matter of hiring this man or that, and you hired this one rather than that. You remember everything now, and your heart breaks. Too late. You are compromised beyond repair. I mean, that's pretty sobering stuff, right? Now, the flip side of this is, even if you are doing the small things, the small matters, they really do matter. At least that's the lesson that I take from this. That's why it's so important, no matter how small, doing the right thing, standing on your principles, is, is never a bad place to be. Margaret Anna Alice in her article goes on to quote uh, the book, Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. This is written by Christopher R. Browning, who ponders why only 12 men out of a battalion of nearly 500 kindled the courage to decline participation in the Josephal massacre of Polish Jews when Major Wilhelm Trapp, who himself wept bitterly at the command but ultimately complied, saying, but orders are orders, offered to excuse anyone who asked. Twelve out of five hundred. And Browning lists such factors as the pressure for conformity, Himmler's exalting obedience as one of the key virtues of all SS men, 
wartime brutalization, racism, segmentation, and routinization of the, of the task, special selection of the perpetrators, careerism, obedience to orders, deference to authority, ideological indoctrination, and fear of isolation, rejection, and ostracism. Thanks to the growing callousness that comes from habituation, he wrote, the soldiers discovered killing was something that someone could get used to. In fact, Browning found Zygmunt Bauman's explanation particularly compelling. Noting for Bauman, cruelty is social in its origin, much more than it is characterological. Bauman argues that most people slip into the roles society provides them. And he's very critical of any implication that that faulty personalities are the cause of human cruelty. So what set those 12 brave men apart? Well, Browning summarizes Bauman's observation. The exception, the real sleeper, is the rare individual who has the capacity to resist authority and assert moral autonomy, but but who is seldom aware of this hidden strength until put to the test. In fact, Browning goes on to cite the conclusion that Philip Zimbardo drew from his notorious Stanford prison experiment, saying the most dramatic and distressing to us was the observation of the ease with which sadistic behavior could be elicited in individuals who were not sadistic types. The prison situation alone, Zimbardo concluded, was a sufficient condition to produce aberrant antisocial behavior. And then he recaps the findings of another famous experiment. That's obedience to authority conducted by Stanley Milgram. Milgram adduced a number of factors to account for such an unexpectedly high degree of potentially murderous obedience to a non-coercive authority. Socialization through family, school, and military service, as well as a whole array of rewards and punishments within society, generally reinforces and internalizes a tendency toward obedience. A seemingly voluntary entry into an authority system perceived as legitimate creates a strong sense of obligation. Those within the hierarchy adopt the authority's perspective or definition of the situation, in this case, as an important scientific experiment rather than the infliction of physical torture. The notions of loyalty, duty, discipline, requiring competent performance in the eyes of authority, become moral imperatives, overriding any identification with the victim. Normal individuals enter into an agentic state in which they are the instrument of another's will, And in such a state, they no longer feel personally responsible for the content of their actions, but only for how well they perform. Once entangled, people encounter a series of binding factors or cementing mechanisms that make disobedience or refusal even more difficult. The momentum of the process discourages any new or contrary initiative. The situational obligation or etiquette etiquette rather makes refusal appear improper, rude, or even an immoral breach of obligation. And a socialized anxiety over potential punishment for disobedience acts as a further deterrent. Now, I've only scratched the surface of this great article by Margaret Anna Alice. Letter to a colluder. Stop enabling. But the point that she's trying to drive home here is the only way to keep yourself from transmogrifying into a monstrous sadist is to alchemize your cowardice into courage now. She says few of the individuals who slaughtered their fellow human beings were psychopaths initially. 
That's the scary part. They were just average folks like you and me. They were simply doing their jobs, which required increasing levels of savagery over time. That is the process by which well-meaning individuals metamorphose into barbarous sociopaths. And she reminds us, you have the power to fell the Goliaths. You have the power to expose the corrupt. You have the power to subvert the technocrats. You have the power to uncloak the transhumanist. You have the power to bring justice to the self-installed oppressors, oppressors demolishing and reconstructing the world in their own malevolent image. You have the power to not follow orders. It's a great article. I hope you'll take the time to read it. We'll be back in just a few moments. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. I'm excited to talk about a new product from Healthy Cell, AC11. This is a patented bioactive extract of Uncaria tomentosa from the Amazon rainforest. It supports cell DNA repair and health span. It's a dietary supplement. I'm excited to try it. Many are interested in longevity and attenuation of senescence. We know that telomere length and other uh, biologic measures are related to senescence in uh, 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 clinical and uh, preclinical studies, particularly of animal models. And I can tell you as a doctor, dietary supplements do hold the promise of attenuating repair and damage in our body due to stress, physical wear and tear, sunlight, etc. And there's a tremendous opportunity for supplements to help us in this area. And so Healthy Cell has brought a product to market for you to try as part of your health portfolio. So please go to HealthyCell.com and in the promotional code, list out loud for 20% off your first purchase of products from Healthy Cell. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. AmericaOutloud.com. Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea, you can listen in on iHeartRadio. Our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa or our world-class media player. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Once again, welcome back. This is the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, filling in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. So what do you think? In that first segment, that, uh, that article about uh, letter to a colluder, stop enabling tyranny, kind of puts some pretty serious responsibility on each one of us. And yet, if you look around you today, you will find that there is no surer way to attract negative attention you know, the cancel culture crowd and so forth, than to simply be that person who stands up against 
the Goliath of misinformation, who dares to speak the truth at a time where truth is considered a very subversive thing. I've become a big fan of Brandon Smith as a writer over the years, and there was an article that he penned just a few days ago about the courageous L.A. County Sheriff telling the truth about COVID vax mandates. And since Brandon has such a great way of putting this into perspective, I wanted to share this with you just to show you that sometimes that courage can come from unexpected quarters. He says the battle over the attempted forced vaccination of 100% of the American population, regardless of scientific reason or prudence, has brought out the absolute worst within a certain group of people in our society. He says they're showing their true colors as the authoritarians they really are, desperately clamoring for the power to compel people they don't know or care about to submit to an environmental COVID vaccine with no long-term testing to prove its safety. Now, he actually wrote another article called Noam Chomsky Goes Off the Deep End, Proving All Socialism Leads to Tyranny. And he says, I have to say, there are some folks out there who are shockingly monstrous just under the surface. And it makes you realize how the dictatorships and genocides of the 20th century were made possible. Now, Brandon Smith points out that historians tend to blame the idea of the charismatic dictator for the rise of totalitarianism in any given culture. As if all it takes is just a single, well-dressed and well-spoken figure with the ability to manipulate the emotional output of the masses into doing things they would not otherwise do. But he says this is a fantasy. Because in reality, dictators and oligarchs cannot come to power without the avid support of a certain subset of the population that wants and loves tyranny. That is to say, authoritarians in government appeal to the rotten core of the worst of humanity. The sociopaths, the narcissists, the psychopaths, the control freaks, and the micromanagers. They work hand-in-hand with the aberrant and the fearful, the deceitful and the grotesque, and they align with such people to make it appear as though authoritarianism is an overwhelming desire of the majority when it's actually the deviant thirst of an aggressive minority. Of course, as in physics, there is no action within human society without an equal and opposite reaction. Just as the COVID mandates have brought out the worst in some people, they've also brought out the best in others. The people who love and respect logic, reason, and individual liberty are massing. We are legion. And I've been consistently surprised, he says, at how many of there, how many of us there are within government institutions, including law enforcement. Now, the sheriff of L.A. County, Alex Villanueva, proved this this courage, his courage rather, this week, with a public media address covering the destructive effects of those COVID mandates on his own department, using cold hard data to show that thousands of personnel and deputies of the sheriff's department will be leaving or forced out of work by L.A. County if the vaccine mandates move forward in January. And what's really fascinating is he also faced down a torrent of some of the dumbest and most vitriolic questions I've ever heard from a crowd of clearly biased journalists, meaning leftist activists, scrambling to cast doubt on the sheriff and his data. In fact, in his article, he has a link to the YouTube of this, uh, this press conference. Now, keep in mind, says Brandon Smith, that the sheriff is a vaccinated person, but he still continues to defend the rights of his deputies to make personal informed decisions on the jab. 
Being anti-mandate does not mean a person is necessarily anti-vax. He says, I think the sheriff did an admirable job in presenting his case, so I'm not going to rehash it here. But he says, what I do want to talk about is some of the insane rhetoric coming from the reporters in the crowd as they tried to confront and browbeat this sheriff on his information and personal stance. Because there were some facts that the sheriff put forward that the media seemed especially triggered by. So let's talk about those issues for a moment. First and foremost, he reminded his audience that COVID mandates are not laws. And Brandon Smith says multiple leftist reporters were extremely perturbed by the notion that the sheriff's department personnel could be allowed to defy the mandates at all. This was perhaps their most revealing line of questioning from the media, showcasing their complete lack of knowledge on constitutional law and their inherent hunger for control. Now, primarily, the questioning asserted that deputies and other staff would be breaking the law by refusing to comply with the mandates. And the media compared noncompliance with the jab to criminal noncompliance with a traffic stop. Well, Sheriff Villanueva rightly reminded the reporters that COVID mandates are not laws. But the reporters didn't seem to understand. One of them even suggested that this argument is just semantics. Brandon Smith says, no, it is not semantics. If mandates are laws, then our country's legal system should be done away with entirely, and all decisions should be made from on high by executive fiat, making people like Biden and his handlers dictators by by default. You see, laws are passed by legislatures or voted on by the citizenry in the U.S. These vax mandates are what is called color of law. Their dictates passed down by executive order or through bureaucracy with no checks and balances and are presented as laws when they are not. There is no allowance for mandates in the U.S. Constitution. And I would also remind COVID cultists that there is no allowance for emergency powers within the Bill of Rights. Brandon Smith says the government doesn't get to wake up one day and decide which rights you're allowed to have and which rights you're not allowed to have based on their arbitrary perception of a national emergency. Our rights, he says, are sacrosanct and not subject to the whims of government. So one reporter asks if the sheriff is supporting the idea that people should be allowed to pick and choose which laws they want to obey. Now, the sheriff says, of course not. But the question is disingenuous at its core and assumes that laws are sacred in and of themselves. So if a law is unconstitutional and immoral, then yes, each person absolutely has the right to shrug off that law. Laws do not matter. All that matters is what is right and what is wrong. One would hope that our society's laws would reflect our society's values and principles, but sometimes they stand in direct opposition to our moral compass. COVID mandates are not laws, and even if they were, they would be both unconstitutional and immoral laws that do not deserve our respect. And there's nothing wrong with refusing to obey an illegal and immoral order. Now, Brandon Smith says, I always thought that losing one's job was supposed to be the punishment for the unvaxxed. But he says, apparently that's not enough for the COVID cultists. Reporters insinuate that people who don't comply with the vax should be criminally prosecuted under the mandates, which again are not laws, just as a person would be criminally prosecuted for not complying with a deputy during a traffic stop. And Brandon Smith says this confirms my suspicion that the leftists did not expect such a large number of people to risk their jobs to defy the mandates. 
He says leftists and pro-authoritarians have no concept of valuing principles over one's own comfort or safety. And so the large national opposition to the mandates has caught them off guard. Now they're facing the prospect that they will have to suffer real-world consequences for their support of vax authoritarianism. And he says the leftists don't like that. The sheriff logically outlines the facts on the ground in terms of personnel and how many will be leaving or will be fired due to the mandates. And the numbers hit hard. With at least 30% of the department gone, law enforcement in L.A. County will be effectively crippled. Now, they're already short-staffed as it is because of the L.A. County Board of Supervisors and their woke agenda to defund the police. Well, suddenly losing their police force is not sitting well with those same woke activists. So the bottom line is this. The system as we know it will shut down if the mandates are enforced. And even though the media was very aggressive in trying to cast doubt on the idea that many deputies and staff were leaving because of the mandates, the sheriff squashed that immediately by saying, it's very clear the losses could only be attributed to VAX requirements. Any other suggestion would be disingenuous. See, this is why Joe Biden and friends are waiting to enforce the mandates till after the Christmas season. They know that businesses and industries across the board will be hobbled by the loss of 30% or more of their workers, and that many government institutions will be unable to function with the loss of 10% of staff, let alone 30% or more. So the media is already trying to paint the narrative that people forced out of their jobs because of the mandates are the bad guys, not the victims. This is classic leftist gaslighting. They attack the population with their edicts. They offer a non-choice in terms of compliance. And then when a large number of people choose to make sacrifices rather than submit, the authoritarians label those people criminals. So in other words, the message is, because you will not submit to my tyranny, you are hurting society. Your lack of submission to my authoritarianism is an attack on me and the greater good. Beautifully put. Now, Brandon goes on to point out how the narrative is more important to COVID cultists than the facts. And I thought this was a very interesting take. The reporters who were then assailing the sheriff there in L.A. County argued that the sheriff should be evangelizing for the vaccines instead of giving such a presentation. And Brandon Smith says, I find their use of language interesting. I've long said that pro-vaxxers are a kind of cult that ignores the science and has turned the national medical response into a political witch hunt against conservatives and liberty-minded people. The media thinks the sheriff of L.A. County should be evangelizing to his staff, which means they want him to stop publicly sharing data that disagrees with their religion because it could derail what they believe to be a righteous crusade. But the vax mandates have nothing to do with public health and everything to do with public control. And Sheriff Villanueva rightly points out that people who are vaccinated should not be worried about the vax status of the person next to them. So if the vaccines work, then the unvaccinated should pose no threat whatsoever to the vaccinated. If they don't work, then why are they trying to mandate them in the first place? I mean, let's face a few facts here. Vaccinated people still actively spread the virus. Highly vaccinated countries like Israel have the highest infection rates in the world. Vaccinated people make up the bulk of hospitalizations and deaths in majority vaccinated countries. 
Unvaccinated people who have natural immunity are up to 27 times more protected from COVID than people who take the vaccines. Now, these are the facts. And by the way, he's got links in his article. Brandon Smith links to the the sources that would back this up. Furthermore, the the media refuses to openly discuss the actual death rate of the COVID virus. The median infection fatality rate of COVID is a mere 0.27%. That's according to the medical establishment and numerous peer-reviewed studies. Who are the unvaxxed a threat to? 0.2% of the population? Why don't those people take the vax and leave the rest of us alone? Does the science not matter anymore? He says there's no evidence that shows the unvaccinated pose a threat to anyone. None. Zero. Yet COVID cultists are calling for the unvaxxed to suffer joblessness, poverty, and possible criminal prosecution for refusing to comply. This is madness. And when you allow insane people to take control of your society, collapse is sure to follow. Now, one of the reasons I'm bringing this up today is because, as as Brandon Smith points out, it's very likely the media is going to try to bury this presentation by Sheriff Villanueva because it destroys the narrative that an overwhelming majority of law enforcement and other government employees are on board with the vax mandates. That's what we're being told. This shows that, no, not all of them are. And it also runs contrary to a number of lies surrounding the justifications for the experimental vaccines in general. Finally, the media reaction is so ridiculous and unhinged that one immediately sees the difference between the COVID cult and a normal, rational person like the sheriff. They come off as zealots while he presents as wise. So Brandon Smith says, I applaud his reserve and calm demeanor in the face of such rabid stupidity. And I applaud his bravery in standing for truth in an era where truth is vilified. Now, again, this is a this is an article by Brandon Smith at uh, alt-market.us. I'll have a link to this in the show notes, and I would strongly encourage, take a look at them. I think you'll find it worth your time. Now, let's shift gears, and let's acknowledge that, uh, yes, the last 20 months have been difficult. Yes, I think the word sucked might uh, might actually be applicable here. The, 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 the suck factor was great over the last 20 months. Still, there are some positive aspects and opportunities that have come about because of what we have gone through. And Jeffrey Tucker, writing for the, uh, this is for the Brownstone Institute, has said that, uh, this is, this is what he, he is saying. He says that the war we've been through and the birth of the new is something that, uh, that we need to take into consideration. And the beauty of this is, it's hard to see the positive aspects, you know, when you're when you're especially feeling that that boot on the back of your neck. But I like how Jeffrey Tucker puts it. He says, I was in Marshall's yesterday. He was in a department store where dystopian vertical boards keep people in checkout lines separated like cattle at a feeding trough. Customers approach the checkout to encounter a masked person behind plexiglass. They pay with a touchless tech and then scamper away with hope that we avoided a pathogenic enemy we cannot see. So we can't see it, but we sure did institutionalize ways to avoid it, all codified by the science and imposed by force and fear. Like the social distancing stickers on the floor, all this apparatus are part of the surviving relics of a world gone mad. 
No trying on clothing, no sampling perfume. A full-time employee stood at the entrance to enforce mask wearing. Keep that mask over your nose. It was all part of virus control, which became a mystical liturgy that governed life for 20-some months after darkness fell in the spring of 2020. Now, these signs and symbols of mass panic, he says, are gradually going away, leaving in their wake sadness, regret, shattered dreams, psychological trauma, bad health, ruined businesses, broken friendships and families, and a loss of confidence and trust in myriad institutions that once took our respect for them for granted. Listen to this next part. Jeffrey Tucker says the people who did this to the world are still clinging to the hope that they can make a dignified walk back from the disasters they created. That seems to be the major point of the vaccine mandate domestically and for foreigners traveling in. It's the best hope, they believe, for providing them cover. They had to get everyone jabbed before we got our freedom back. We resisted their dictates out of ignorance, they said, so they had to impose them with ever more fines and threats. Thus are we transitioning from the kabuki, the COVID kabuki dance to a system of overt segregation of the clean versus the unclean, a situation we've encountered before during the most morally egregious episodes in modern history. And while the clean are granted freedom, the unclean cannot travel, cannot participate in public life, and sometimes cannot shop or get medical care. Now, never mind that the data are not playing along. While the private benefit for the vulnerable from the vaccine exists, the public health benefit appears more dubious by the day, especially given the manner in which public health authorities have obstinately denied what at least 106 studies have already affirmed. What we've been through is impossible to describe in a sentence, says Jeffrey Tucker, because there are so many dimensions to it. It affected and traumatized everything and everyone. Now, he recalls trying to imagine what the blowback would look like. And, and this was back in April 2020, writing with no clue that the frenzy would continue for another year and a half. Jeffrey Tucker says, I predicted an impending revolt against masks, against mainstream media, against politicians, against Zoom-only life, against distancing, distancing rather, against academia, against experts in general, and against public health authorities in particular. And he says, I was correct, but far too early in my prediction. What began as a dreadful error in political and bureaucratic judgment became an entrenched policy and then a generalized practice of disregarding basic human rights in every area of life. The schools remained shut for the year while enforcement of absurdity became the national way of life. The point of exhaustion with the entirety of the antivirus theater happened in waves across the country and has only reached the whole country after 20 months. So here comes the good news. The result was not only carnage, but also learning and responding. The passage of time has highlighted that we are living amidst not only the death of institutions and expertise, but also witnessing the glorious birth of new institutions and voices. And this has been exciting to watch. COVID restriction and cancel culture coincided taking out some of the most intelligent and prescient intellectuals in the public space. They had their social media accounts deleted, their jobs threatened, and sometimes taken away, their access to their audiences throttled. This is because legacy social media platforms signed up to become mouthpieces for the regime. And the result was an astonishing dreariness. Not actual reporting at all. 
Anything that reinforced the lockdown slash mandate line was allowed in. Anything contradicting was blocked. And the scientific journals weren't much better. But thanks to the will to survive, the canceled found other outlets that are now thriving. The stodgy and stultifying information blockades provided an opportunity for other institutions to be born and blossom in record time. There are new video platforms and social media channels that are doing a booming business. For instance, Jeffrey Tucker says, I found myself relying on Substack and other new venues for actual information at a time when mainstream media has been marching in political lockstep with the lockdown regime. Substack, for example, was founded with a $2 million investment in 2017. Now it's on its Series B funding round with $84 million along with 213 employees. Now the business model of Substack sounds a bit like many others. It enabled publishing. Crucially, it allows its users to accept subscriptions, which it then mails to users post by post. It permits its authors to make some content free and some paid and allows them to set the price. In other words, the platform enables authors to achieve pretty much what the New York Times does, but without all the third-party plugins and setup required to set up a paid blogging platform. But here's the real business advantage. It refused to censor responsible material. In fact, it made itself a home to those who were being censored by others. Users and authors both began to trust the platform after its owners were hounded by the mainstream press and refused to budge. They would be a platform for free speech, period. And this not only saved Alex Berenson from death by Twitter, it's inspired countless new intellectuals and writers who've been victimized by COVID cancel culture. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have reached new highs and record adoption in those times, too as the value of national currencies depreciates due to reckless monetary policies and lockdown-related breakages. Having never shut down even in the darkest days or seen their operations throttled, they've taken on the role of a safe haven in dangerous times. He points out how the Brownstone Institute is also a case of new birth. The website went live on April 1st, 2021, but will soon have racked up 3 million page views along with a global network of contacts. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says the growth has been phenomenal to behold. And why? He says, we have yet to produce fancy videos or hire a marketing team and all the rest. But we have all that's necessary for success in the post-lockdown world. Outstanding content that provides light rather than propaganda. In addition, there are already new universities being founded alongside new research institutes, activist organizations, and television shows and podcasts. He says we're looking at a probable political realignment. And inevitably, philanthropy too will catch up, will need to catch up to the new. Support will likely leave institutions that failed us so miserably during the lockdowns and refuse to step up to defend human rights. Perfect example. The well-funded ACLU has enjoyed a long history of taking unpopular positions in defense of human liberties until they decided to throw it all away in defense of a pandemic policy that had zero regard for rights and liberties. There are thousands of other institutions and individuals that completely flopped when their voices were most needed. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says every crisis in the history of modernity has produced a cultural and social realignment. Old institutions on the wrong side sink into the mire of their own disrepute 
while new ones rise up to take their place. Standing courageously on principle and inspiring students, customers, benefactors, and the general public. What failed is washed away, and what stood steadfast gains new prominence. Now he says, what we've lived through has warlike features and will have culture-shifting effects. Many people were tested. Many people failed. He says, the failures made a bad bet that playing it safe and echoing regime priorities was the prudent path. But now they sit on a digital archive of cowardice, censorship, bad science, and disregard for humane values. More inspiring to watch has been the emergence of a new movement that transverses political and ideological lines and is defined by its implacable commitment to enlightenment values, human freedom, and the determination to celebrate what's true against all odds. In other words, what used to be called normal as recently as 2019. The birth and growth of the new, he says, is a tribute to the reality that human beings will not be forced to live in cages and think only what our masters tell us to think. We are wired to be free, creative, and truth-telling, and cannot abide by systems that attempt to stamp out all those instincts and instead treat us all like lab rats or code in their models. No, never. The crazy rules and practices governments and corporations adopted and imposed over the last 20 months will in time look ridiculous and embarrassing to nearly everyone. That we went along with such preposterous practices is a sad commentary on the human condition and its primitive ways. He says, apparently, we as a society are just a step away from the abyss into which a well-timed campaign of fear can push us. And I'm not sure that any of us knew that until we lived it. We will emerge on the other side of this wiser, stronger, more determined and motivated by the new realization that the civilization we take for granted is not a given, but might instead be held by a thread that must be reinforced daily by knowledge, wisdom and moral courage. He says we can never again allow a ruling class to exercise such brutality against the people. It has not ended well for the lockdowners and mandators. They are perhaps now beginning to realize they are not the authors of history. We are. Everyone is. No one is born, appointed, much less destined to dictate to everyone else. That powerful conviction forged modernity and what it means to be civilized. There will be no turning back the clock, not at this late date, in the course of human progress. Now again, this is Jeffrey Tucker, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. And I just have to ask you, does does that not strike a little bit of hope in your heart? I guarantee things have been tough. And there, there are, from everything I'm seeing, it looks like we could probably see some tough times ahead. Inflation is uh, it's here. And despite the media saying, ah, well, it's actually a good thing. No, it's it's not. Last st- The last statistic I saw that I thought put this into proper context was that every dollar you have in the bank is losing 1% of its pur- purchasing power every 30 days. Okay, I'm not a big math guy, but I can even do the simple math and realize that's a really bad thing. For people whose money is tied up in savings and tied up in their retirement, people who will be living on fixed incomes, we're headed to a pretty dangerous place. I'm nervous when I see the the breakdowns in the supply chain, which I think are deliberate. I think these are the result of regulatory power gone amok. 
There's still political intrigue. And, and the biggest question of all is, what's going to happen after the holidays when January comes and somebody in authority thinks that it's a good idea to go ahead and force the issue and either put a lot of people out on the streets, kick them out of their jobs and remove their ability to, to earn a living or to travel in the name of you didn't get the jab. So, yeah, there's still some wild cards on the horizon. There's still some pretty choppy water ahead. This is very in keeping with a fourth turning, which I've spoken about before at some length. But let me finish on a positive note here. I agree with Jeffrey Tucker that we are up to this challenge. And I can only speak for myself here, but I suspect you're probably a little bit like me. When someone tells me you can't do that, you aren't allowed to think that you cannot read this, you cannot think that, you may not say these things. The very first thing I start doing is looking for a way to do exactly that. Until I've had a chance to sort it out for myself and decide, is it something that I want to say or not? You weren't born to wear a collar and a leash. So let's start acting like it. And remember, even the little things do make a difference. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network.